I'd like to start this, um, this lunchtime seminar. Um, my name is Elika and um, I'm the director of TORCH and this is um, one of our TORCH lunchtime seminar series and we're delighted um, to be able to host um, Fatu Wuri today. Um, just before I formally introduce that, I just did want to um, let you all know that if I seem a little frazzled and a little sort of out of sorts, it's because I had a massive, along with many, many others in my department, a massive phishing or phishing attack last night with about 8,000 um, emails hitting my inbox a kind of between the hours of, of, of 12 and 2. And, and what this means, for those of you who may not have experienced these delights before, it means manually deleting each kind of row. So that's, that's all I've been doing all morning. It's maddening because it also means my mailbox is closed down, so I've not been in touch with the world. Anyway, so that's just to kind of share my words with you. It did actually feel quite good to unburden myself. <laughs> anyway, that aside, um, it's with real great pleasure that, um, that we welcome um, Fatu Wuri today um, with um, this seminar, Repositioning Women's Healthcare, a case study on women who survived Ebola in Sierra Leone. And for those who may already have seen the really astonishing, deeply moving exhibition in, in the corridor, um, you'll, you'll know that um, Fatu comes um, with a kind of a wealth of experience um, and expertise and insight into, into this situation. Fatu Wuri is a Master in Public Policy candidate at the Blavatnik School of Government, just across the way there, and she's currently also president of Oxford Women in Politics. She's a writer, public speaker, as you'll see in a moment, activist and founder at the Survivor Dream Project, which is a, no a local non-profit organization that provides support to women and youth survivors of trauma Sierra Leone. And this is what her, her presentation today will focus on. And we are really very grateful to Fatu for coming to share um, this paper and also to have shared the exhibition in the hallway. Um, as many of you know, I, I probably don't need to say this, but just because we are all very um, pleased and delighted always to celebrate Torch, um, this is um, an event um, related to our research centre in the humanities where um, scholars from across the humanities disciplines come together to collaborate with one another on subjects um, related to or to areas of mutual interest. Um, and we're also very, very keen, and this is another reason why we're so delighted to, to host you today, we're very keen to develop partnerships across the university and beyond uh, on issues that we are all exercised about. So you're all very, very welcome. And um, I'd now like to hand, hand over to Fatu Wuri to take us through the seminar, and I will be the chair. Thanks very much, Fatu. Let's give her a clap. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I, I, uh, when I walked up here, I was just, it was just filled with a lot of gratitude um, to see the images of our women and our story in the hallway. I know from where we come and where we started and to just have pieces of their story and our journey for in the UK at Oxford being shared is just a testament to what is possible when um, <laughs> when you have an idea and, and, and you want to make some, some level of change. Um, before I start, so actually thank you to Torch, thank you to LK, Victoria, Rabia, um, the entire Torch team for being supportive, not just with this talk, but throughout the year. Um, I secretly think that the humanities are my people, even though I exist <laughs> down the other side. <laughs> um, so this is, a, it's always, it feels, it's just, it's like, you know, it feels very homey for me. Um, before I get into the presentation and sort of tell you and just talk about our journey and, and why um, I'm really passionate and, and focused on, on gender equality, equity and agency in my country but also on the continent, um, I'm going to be really self-indulgent and just play a three minute video. It will put into context um, how a very sort of Western educated, like I just came from Vancouver, I moved back home to Africa, um, became more of, wow, this, there's a responsibility um, to really, to, to really um, work in this area. So if you bear with me. 
I remember um, when I first got my first big job, it was working for um, a different funded um, campaign that was managed by uh, a consulting firm actually based in the UK called Options. And they made me a communications advisor, and I was really excited for the pay. And then they were like, you know, in your role, you have to be able to um, translate all of this evidence, all of this science into, into local language, into a language that everyone can understand across a large spectrum of, of audience. So from policymakers all the way to Joe in like community who doesn't even read. And I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. How am I going to do this? But the pay is good, so I'm going to do it. And I remember um, just six months into being in the job, I traveled to Mapake, which was about 20 minutes from Makeni. Um, and I went there to do a training with traditional birth attendants. And the minute I walked into the clinic, which was a peripheral health unit, a PHU, a woman had just delivered. Her placenta was on the floor. Her legs were sprawled open. There was blood guzzing out. Um, and the baby couldn't breathe. And I just dropped everything. I didn't even go into the training hall. And I walked into the, into the ward. And her mother is sitting there helpless. And two nurses are just running around trying to find something to resuscitate the baby. And there is this 18-year-old girl, sprawled open, just having given birth, placenta on the floor, scared and crying. So I rushed to her side. And they said, OK, you know, since you're there, we don't even know who you are. But just push her, her womb down, like just some medical term I didn't understand. I did that fear and <laughs> I pushed her, you know, pushed her womb down uh, beneath her navel and just cleaned her up. And I went to the, to the other room where the baby was and they're like, oh, uh, sorry about that. You should be careful. You may put yourself at risk because she has something. And I'm like, thanks. Thanks for that after the fact. But it didn't matter. And in that moment, after I cleaned this mother up, this 18-year-old girl up, I was there. Her baby, her newborn, is on, on this wooden desk or something and we're trying to resuscitate her, her child. And that was when, um, and no one was moving, the nurses called the, the hospital in McKinney and they said that the ambulance driver was sleeping. And then they said the ambulance driver had lost his keys. And that was when we found a taxi somewhere in, the, in that little town. Um, mother, mother's mother had no money, got them into the taxi, get them transportation, take your baby to McKinney Government Hospital. And I finished the workshop we were doing there, and then afterwards I went to McKinney, and and then, and then there was the baby, he survived. He survived, he was in an incubator, and I have a picture too to this day where I'm holding his tiny little beautiful hands, and that was when it made sense to me. That if we hadn't been there that day, just by chance, that child would not have lived, and, that, and, 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 and maybe even his mother would have um, and, and, and there it was, the responsibility to ensure that every child survives childbirth, every mother survives childbirth. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. All of a sudden, my work and my reason for coming back home made complete sense. So this is a boy. Um, and he, he's the one that, that pretty much changed everything and it went from being just a job to um, this is dire and I have responsibility to just um, really commit to this field. Um, and so I ended up working for this different project, Mamae, for about three years. Um, and in that space, looking at maternal newborn health, looking at women's health in Sierra Leone, we ran campaigns throughout the country. Um, a major cause of maternal death is hemorrhaging, so we really did a lot of blood drives. My mother wasn't happy about that because I was like donating my blood in the middle of like random, random villages. She's like, you're going to die. Um, but this was this was our work, and in there you can see the intersectionality and the, and, and just understanding what it means to be your average Sierra Leonean um, woman and and the barriers to accessing quality healthcare and the social social structural barriers through policies that exist that perpetuate that disparity. 
Um, so in short, where the, the place I come from is not just as someone that was working for this different project, but definitely an activist, a very vocal activist um, on women's health in Sierra Leone, definitely coming from a rights-based approach. And for me, it wasn't just about, it's not the lack of resources or funding that was the issue, it's how these solutions are being um, constructed. And it was really without the agency and the voice of a lot of the women that were recipients of, of these programs. Um, and I do come from a storytelling background, so really using stories, humanizing a lot of the women that we were working for and working with um, in order to, 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 to shed light on the issues, but also to hold um, decision makers accountable. And, and, and stories not just, in a really, for me it was really important that I wasn't retelling the African stereotypical narrative, but that I was finding creative ways to ensure that the women that were participating in this dialogue were really were humanized in a way that felt true to them, most importantly. Um, and in all of this, my whole argument has been like it's we have to um, redesign a responsive healthcare system. Um, we were looking and continue whether it's maternal newborn health, whether it's um, abortion, whether it's teenage pregnancy, whatever it was from when we had the wards, the series of mini micro shocks that the country has suffered before Ebola, a cholera outbreak, torrential floods, etc., etc. Um, we were looking at women or just populations in general as problems to be solved and not looking at um, our recipients and our beneficiaries as people whose potential we have to unlock and with that really comes their agency. Um, the reason I say this is because this is why this project has existed. So when um, Ebola, the Ebola crisis happened in Sierra Leone, um, I was there throughout the two and a half years. And I worked in various capacities, first with this uh, DFID project, and then I went to the UN side of the response and got even more angry, uh, left the UN response <laughs> with very little money and just started um, doing the work that I felt um, was filling a gap in, in, in the response. So, um, this, was a, this was a quote that I gave to Ebola Deeply, which I think was the most nuanced um, digital platform that was recording stories I mean, information around the crisis across the three countries, Liberia, um, Sierra Leone and Guinea. And for me, the emphasis was that, of course, we had so much donor support internationally, but people have to really understand, know, and these stories weren't really highlighted, that it's Sierra Leoneans that have been saving themselves over and over again through self-determined community mobilization and engagement and through kindness despite fear and through our very own resilience. Where the crisis um, broke out in, in the eastern province, Kenema, um, reaching where I was born, um, you know, that was the epicenter of the crisis initially. And when the communities figured that there were people who were dying, it wasn't some government ploy or it wasn't some curse, it really was real. They got themselves together. Throughout the response, that area, that part of Sierra Leone remained Ebola free. And it started off as the epicenter of the outbreak. And this wasn't necessarily due to the resources that came through donor funding, but it really was communities regulating, communities self-disciplining, um, communities standing up and saying, this is our problem and we're going to do it. So for, I'm sure everyone probably knows what happened. It was on every news outlet. Uh, we can debate how you got the information, but generally the information is out there. So um, over 28,000 cases in total across the three countries um, in West Africa, over 11,000 deaths, and in Sierra Leone it was about over 5,000 deaths, and we're a population of about 6 million. And really, for me, um, what highlighted and perpetuated the, the dire um, nature of, of this crisis was it really highlighted and completely exposed our social structural issues and the lack of investment in our institutions. Um, and also, there are deep physical and psychosocial effects that just didn't, affect, didn't happen on an individual level or at communities, but also even internationally. So Sierra Leonean, Liberian, and Guinean diasporans living in the West were, were also facing stigma. They were also experiencing the same fear, the same stigma, the same isolation, or very similar anyway, as those of us that were on the ground. Um, and a lot of the stigma was coming from people in, in the West and the fear of what Ebola was all about. And so we see that there's cross-cutting impact, but this, this talk really is gonna focus on 
what drives me, which is, which is uh, gender parity, gender disparity, and looking at women specifically. Most of the times when people talk about the crisis, I, I don't know how many really focus on, on, on women and, and the impact of the disease um, on, on, on them. Um, I just want to, before I move forward, just take you back. I can sit here in a very sort of like, stand here in a very just, you know, objective way and talk about the, the psychosocial effects and things like that. But I sometimes have to pinch myself, especially when I'm at Oxford, Oxford and like going for coffee at like barefoot or just like, you know, seeing people ride bikes and like no one has high gates and everyone just seems so friendly. It's such a safe pristine space. There was a time about two and a half years ago where my country was one of the most difficult places to live in. Every doctor that we knew that either birthed me, because there aren't many of those, they're like archives, were dying. People around us, everything was shut. There was a time, there was only two, there are only two ways to leave Sierra Leone. I was telling some people who came earlier, it was either through a UN plane or um, Air Brussels, or you take the road to Guinea. The entire world left us for about three months. So sometimes at Oxford, I just have to pinch myself and say, okay, life's good, I'm here. Um, so I'm going to quickly just sort of go through the acute and uh, short and long-term disparities, and then what surviving and rebuilding looks like, and then our research um, and, and what we perceive to be impact, because who knows if it was impactful. I think it was, but you know, it's up to you. All right. so. 2015, um, Ebola was officially were declared in a state of emergency by September 2014, although we knew this was happening um, early 2014, but the minister at that time, very young, diaspora, sassy, you know, for many of us, someone we looked up to, she came into the system from outside and was, was a breath of fresh air, denied that there was Ebola. And she was saying it was going to stay in Guinea. And WHO, as you know, of course, also said there, there was no Ebola. So, um, and then people started to die. Um, and so the first um, set of data wherein we were able to disaggregate, um, um, disaggregate these cases was in December of 2015, about a year later. That was when we were actually able to look through the data and, um, that we had collected over the year. And we found out that, of course, women were disproportionately affected, 56.7% compared to men. And it wasn't necessarily because of, bi like, there's no biological uh, reasoning in terms of our biological makeup as to why we, we, women are more vulnerable, but it really has to come to like social, economic, structural issues that influence uh, women being disproportionately affected. But for me, this goes without saying any crisis anywhere in the world, whether it's Ebola, tsunami, war, women are just generally um, disproportionately affected. So one of the social factors that really did, like determinants of our gender disparity are health workers. 90% um, of our healthcare worker, uh, healthcare workforce are women, are nurses, um, and so they're the frontline workers. So they were just naturally um, the ones that, that were most um, uh, affected by it. Um, and also they were deprioritized when, um, when protection materials came finally to healthcare facilities. Doctors were, were, were preferred and doctors were predominantly men. So, as you can see, women were more disproportionately affected. And then, of course, for increased forms of infection and things like that, a lot of the cleaners were also just the helpers in health facilities are women. Other social determinants, farming. Uh, women are the ones that predominantly travel between Guinea and Sierra Leone. That border, as you can tell, in the eastern, it was in the northern province for the longest time. It was the hardest area to break transmission because of our trade links. Um, and you could see that they were completely, and that, was, that increased transmission and infection. And just the social cultural positioning of women as caregivers in the communities, as people who do, um, who cook, who um, deliver children, who do cutting rituals, who wash the dead, um, and, and, and by nature, I mean in Sierra Leone, look at our literacy rates for women, just 33.6%. So we were already, <laughs> just the, the, the structure of our society, I mean, we'll just expounded on that, on that issue. Um, I keep saying that no rich person died of Ebola in Sierra Leone. This was completely a poverty-driven disease. Let's just summarize it as that. Um, and if you are fairly wealthy or whatever, it's either because you're a healthcare worker or for women who were infected, it was through some type of um, 
uh, infidelity by their husbands, and we have a specific case of that um, happening. So there really, it was, it really was a poverty-driven disease, and there are only three ways to, to, to get it. And when we talk about the biological factors that contribute to the gender disparities, we really focus on pregnant women. So prior to Ebola, uh, we were already having issues with at service delivery end and our maternal um, our mortality rates, our maternal health rates. And of course, with Ebola, that just exacerbates the issue. And then also, um, around 2015, we were starting to see more survivors. Um, but at the end of the day, because of our social cultural status and roles of women, they had very little agency in being able to persuade their partners to use protection, even though they were told as an Ebola survivor, you must use protection for at least three months. And then we found out that you know, semen, um, Ebola genetic materials exist in, in semen up to 175 days. So we're seeing a lot of reinfection rates because of these factors. Okay, so long term. So those were the things that were just influencing that disparity. Um, but what happened during that time, and so at first I was not a believer, when first of all our first lady and a lot of news outlets were saying, teenage pregnancy has increased, um, sexual violence has increased, I'm like, mm, it was always there, you were just ignoring it. But um, we did see <laughs> that due to um, the reduction in health and support services, there was a time in Freetown, I can speak specifically on that, when friends, because I was working with Southern Newborn, you know, I, they knew I was working in that, in that area, would call me at one point, 10 friends saying, my cousin, my wife, my niece, my friend cannot go to their community health, care, uh, health facility and they're pregnant. So a friend, and a, a couple of friends and I pulled some money together to be able to get these 10 women into private care because hospitals were shut across the city. Women could not access healthcare at all because nurses and, and, and doctors were afraid. And we were seeing there was a fast spread of um, rate of infection. So we just saw, so the whole city shut down. Health facilities and healthcare, community healthcare units were shutting down, schools shut down, businesses shut down, and so you saw a spike in, 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 um, in, in violence against women and girls. And of course, um, there was a decrease in healthcare services, and you saw an increase in maternal uh, mortality and morbidity. The iniquities, like I said, it's just reiterating, will naturally exist when you see that our girls have such high illiteracy rates and therefore access to jobs becomes a problem when the entire city is shut down, the country is pretty much shut down and we're in a state of emergency. And then of course, when it comes to our agriculture, a lot of women are, are petty traders or are small farm holders and all of that with the trading from Guinea or from district to district was really controlled. And so you saw those that had a bit of economic um, independence, you saw that really tighten um, during the Ebola crisis, which had far-reaching consequences right after. By the way, every image that you see throughout the presentation are all Ebola survivors and our women that were in our programs. So what continues to happen, what we saw as we saw um, we started having, we started seeing reduction of infection and transmission and an increase in Ebola survivors. We started seeing um, an increase in orphans. We started seeing um, sort of the, the, the tightening and the, the reduction of any of women's economic um, um, agency and also an increase in the economic responsibilities. So like I said, it's a poverty-driven disease. Many of the women are small farm holders, are petty traders, and sometimes are not the breadwinners in their, in their families, and you see their husbands dying. So here is a woman, uneducated, having to care for whatever surviving family member is there with little access. And that was a state we're in in about 2015. And also having to deal with the physical side effects of, of having survived. Because, you know, I remember very uh, poignantly when we used to have survivor conferences. You would survive, they would give you $50 in a mattress and say, go sort your life out. The only organization at that time that was really doing work to sort of integrate and specifically focus on survivors um, that weren't health workers or the burial team and so forth was MSF. They had a survivor clinic, but a lot of women didn't even know about the survivor clinic. You survived, great. Certificate, $50, a new mattress. Got into the world. So this part I want to talk about was surviving 
and rebuilding. This was the part where I left my job with Anmir, not because my boss wasn't amazing, because this has been recorded, she really was a great woman. Um, I was working for Anmir at the time, and I got called in to be their gender and communication specialist. And I walked in thinking, because up until, that was in 2015, at that time, there hadn't been an official UN sort of um, funding going to women's groups or specific gender programs. So I walked in thinking I may have a budget of about a million dollars to play with to be able to make up for, I don't know, a year and a half of not supporting women's groups. I walked in and I was told I had $100,000. So that was very, uh, let's just say, <laughs> politics 101, you know. Um, trying to navigate that system and that was where I got really frustrated. Um, I think we know better and you would think after doing so many emergency um, situations would understand that women have to be a priority in any response and they were not. And so I left my job slash my contract in a very timely manner and um, wanted to focus on, okay, here are people surviving, but what does that mean when they have nothing to survive for? Like what does surviving mean? And so the epidemic at that time really highlighted the intersection between health, human rights, and gender. And I realized and totally recognized that there were a few initiatives, if any at all, that were focused on targeting women, and there was a lack of research and information on women in general. So the priority groups in terms of survivors, and this is the truth, were health workers, which I completely get because they were the forefront of this epidemic, um, the burial teams, um, who else? I think male groups, like they had a survivor organization but that was predominantly male run, and that was it. So if you weren't a health worker, you weren't part of the burial team, there really weren't resources nationally or internationally that would create space to deal with specifically women. So this is where the Survivor Dream Project came, came on board. Um, it was one evening of ranting um, with a bit of alcohol. And I've been very frustrated and thinking, what do we do? And I don't come, by the way, from like a psychology or psychosocial background at all. I come from gender social development. That is all I know, sprinkled with a bunch of work in communications. This is not my area, but I recognize that there were, we didn't have space for women to deal with this trauma. I'm a survivor of a different kind of trauma, so I understood the resources I had access to when I had gone through that and what it meant to be a survivor. I understand that word all too well, and to have women who were surviving without any support was something that was really important. So our tagline is healing bodies and transforming communities, and the aim is really simple. Um, to implement sustainable and impactful social change by supporting women, girls, and youth through subsequent other programming who survive traumatic events to successfully integrate back into society through the provision of psychosocial support, education, capacity building, and entrepreneurial support. So we build in, all of these are um, in-house done um, with experts and consultants to be able to deliver and cater programming for our groups and our women and our recipients that, that caters to their specific needs. Um, and so we have the, it's faith, design, change. Um, and my whole thing is if you know it's funny because i was sounding so pessimistic when we were having lunch but i truly do believe if you're able to support one person just sort of activate their agency that has a ripple effect in their family and in their community so this is our team my sister came from canada to join me she left her job and these are the first two top um, social work graduates from the university of sierra leone that i poached uh, from an organization that had trained them on, on, on trauma and psychosocial work. Um, and we, for a year and a half, worked on the Survivor Dream Project. And for all our programs, this is the basis of our approach. Build up, providing safe spaces, defining what a safe space is, building the curriculum to cater to those uh, recipients, um, and be able to just basically, it's not even revolutionary, it is creating space for people to heal. It is creating space, three hours, bi-weekly, for us to deal with the issues. That is a luxury for so many people who are barely surviving day to day. 
Then we then tried to break them off. So we have um, um, for the younger for the younger girls, we cater to we we fill a specific gap in the education market because there's so many education programs in Sierra Leone. Once you get to secondary school, you have to pass your WAS exams, your West African um, national exams. Um, and it's free when you're in school. But a lot of girls had failed because schools had shut down, there was a crisis going on. And there is no social support to be able to retake the exam. It costs about $350 to take the exam. That is paying for the exam and taking the classes to be able to do that. Where are these people gonna get this money from? So that's the gap that we filled. And then for our petty traders, being able to build curriculum and, and help them um, very basic business plan, think about you know, smart planning, smart finance, um, to be able to, to, to support them long term. And then of course using storytelling and stories as a form not only for policy advocacy, but as a tool for healing. So what were we able to do with our first 20 women? Um, we basically created a space, safe space, um, partnership building, bi-weekly psychosocial support. So for the first six months, it was self-funded. And every, every two weeks, uh, we would have three hours in one space, food, working through our stories, um, providing information so they knew where the resources were, connecting them to those resources, supporting them to those resources. And I think for me, the most powerful part of what we were able to achieve was to advocate for their needs. At that time, women Ebola survivors was really not a thing. And we were on every radio saying, this is a thing, it is really real, there's a gender disparity, and we need to be able to, 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 to address that. And of course, supporting education, livelihood, and, and community development. Our 20 women, um, and an outreach of about 80, but our 20 women that we worked with specifically, seven were under the age of 21, five were health workers, and 13 were petty traders. Um, here are some of the programs that we did. Like I said, I'm the first person to raise my hand and say this is not my background. So what I did was work with experts nationally and internationally to really hold ourselves accountable to this process and to learn. So we're paying people to come run the sessions and to help us build a curriculum that was really, I almost say these are not our beneficiaries, they are co-creators of this space. What does it look like to create a safe space? What does psychosocial um, support look like? What does communal healing look like in this specific context? Um, the first time we got the 20 women together, we did a program called um, You Are Beautiful because a lot of the women, two things were happening. One, they were either survivors for about a year and had never been touched, hadn't left their house, were stigmatized, were ostracized. And so I was like, we're gonna have makeup, we're gonna have music, we're gonna have food. We're going to have head wraps, we're going to touch you, and that's going to be okay because you matter. The other ones were two weeks out of ETU. And at that time, when we started this project, there was information or there was, um, um, we were told that reinfection happens by, by, through sweat. Uh, when you survive. So here we were sweating and touching and holding and I mean looking back it wasn't <laughs> it worked out But it wasn't a good idea to not just forget myself at risk But I was putting four other other people at risk if that if that information or that data um, was true um, But that was the first time all 20 women had been touched had been pampered had been looked at looked for looked at and said Tell us what happened to you not in your I'm a journalist tell me a sad story. I mean, really, who are you? What's your story? What can you do with this? Um, and what we ended up doing was looking at holistic ways of, 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 of our programs. So a lot of our women, we've had, we worked with a, with a city farm. They go to the farm a lot. We get fresh food from the farm. We've helped them set up their own sort of mini farms in their homes so they can, they can, um, they can plant um, things like cassava leaves, potato leaves, which are indigenous to what we eat, which I love and I miss. Uh, and then, of course, all of this stuff, we'll do field trips. A lot of people, um, including Sierra Leoneans, would talk about survivors and how hard it was to be in Sierra Leone and, and how we're so resilient. And people had never seen a survivor, didn't know a survivor, had never touched or talked to a survivor. So we worked with local businesses and got internships for our women to be able to go to the businesses, learn a new skill, and the business owners um, to also really come to face with this issue that they keep talking about, right? 
Um, and what we did as well, when we, after the first six months of solely psychosocial work, and before the second six months where we split them into capacity building, um, we put together a photography exhibition taken by the women, their cameras, the whole process, um, and the money raised um, through that exhibition, we reinvested back into the women's businesses. So it was their thing. Research and impact. In short, it's very qualitative <laughs> uh, over eight months. Um, and this, this taught me, I think it reminded me of the problem with development work and how short term it is. It took us eight months to get, I think, close to some of the truth of these women's stories, to build trust, to have them to open up, to have them to understand the concept, concept of mental well-being. That, yes, yeah, someone is going to spend three hours just listening to you. You're, and and what, you know, what lessons are in this story? How are you feeling? What do you want to do with this? Eight months. And I don't even think it's the truth, these stories. I mean close to the truth. And that involves us also checking. Because <laughs> a lot of the women came in and thought, okay, here is this Cerulean girl who's super Western. She just wants to build a reputation for herself. She's probably going to come in, use us and leave. So they would walk in and say, what do you want? Empowerment. How do you want it? Education. What else do you need? Business money. I'm like, this is not a handout. Like, you know, but I understand that because that's, that's what we're used to. We've come from war. We've come from a cholera outbreak. We've got so much development means is very prescriptive, right? We have the solution. We're here to empower you as opposed to who are you? How do you empower yourself? So shifting that mentality was really important. So this was pretty much what we did, was we just go through the stories over and over again. So a lot of what we got from the analysis of the stories just pretty much um, reiterates what the research had said from the get-go. A lot of the women were primary caregivers, um, loss of loved ones, and a lot of them experienced um, a lack of social support and isolation, significant trauma and distress, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, and what we're trying to do is really see the efficacy of our intervention, its impact on PTSD, anxiety, and depression after quickly diagnosing them because we need to track that. But this was a huge issue and there weren't enough, no, there were no spaces actually dealing with that. Um, increased exposure to sexual exploitation. When we go through some of the stories, I'll tell you how, how why this increase is so real to Ebola survivors because a lot of our 15-year-old uh, survivors lost their entire family. They're the sole survivors. Um, gap in availability of resources, so hierarchies, oppression of, you know, the oppressed, oppressed, the oppressed. So when we had Ebola organizations that were funded by the government and, and various donors, it was very male-dominated and became very elitist. So even for women to, to, to thrive in those organizations became a barrier. And of course, for, if you talk about dreaming to women and saying let's focus on mental health, for them being okay means being able to have money. Very tangible dreams, very practical. I want to be able to have a business. I want to be able to support myself. Um, and of course, sustainability was something that was integral to a lot of the feedback that we got. So some of the stories, I didn't know that this woman's, uh, this case, um, so she lives in Thunder Hill, which is like, it's, it's, a, it's a place in the city that's right between the east, eastern part of the city, the more, what you would call the more impoverished area of Freetown and western Freetown. And there was a huge case because my grandmother lives on the east, and so there was a time we couldn't go to the east, and I didn't realize it was because that whole, the whole side was quarantined was because of this specific case. So... Her place became a hotspot area for about three months due to the death of her, of her husband. Um, and her story is really important. Is, no, it's, I think it's, no, it's not hers. Um, and what ended up happening was that till today she's homeless. Well, we try to figure, try and try and help her build her house. But her community literally could not, do not stand her. For her, for them, she's the witch, she is the person that causes disease, and how can they not? Some of her neighbors lost their entire families after, due to her husband's death, right? Um, so Margaret is a really special person. Some days she's really good, she's really funny, and she's the light of, of our sessions, and some days she, it's difficult. It's really difficult. And her husband was a bear winner, so when he left, breadwinner, sorry, so when he left, he left her um, three bags of charcoal to sell. That was all she was left with. 
um, three bags of charcoal, uh, her husband's gone, a son to look after, and, and that's it. Fatmata's son Rashid is the cutest person ever. Um, and of course, also the same thing, stigma. Her family, her, her neighbors drove her out. This is the right person. I didn't want to mistake stories. Her story was really, was really, was really haunting to me because um, when her husband was ready to die, he actually told her, he said, I think I have Ebola um, and you guys need to go to the hospital. But she was resisting. And she remember her telling us that she went to the room to, and she, her husband, the day he died, asked her to bathe him. He said, bathe me, lay me down, I'm feeling tired. Um, and that's what she did. So she went to the next room with her, with her son. She came back five minutes later and her husband was dead. He, almost as though he prepared her for that moment. And that was when she called 911. Um, so. And of course, um, a common factor or common practice that happened that just made the whole $50 and a, and a certificate and a mattress even more <laughs> problematic is that every time that you were diagnosed with Ebola, the government would burn everything, all their belongings. So they're literally coming out of ETU with nothing. Mabinti, you know, um, a lot of the narratives that were coming during the, the crisis um, and as someone that was there was, you know, these Africans are stubborn. They don't know, you know, they're stubborn, they're dirty, they're, they, they don't listen, what's happening? And a lot of our messaging initially, if you were in Ebola, if you were in Sierra Leone during the first six months of Ebola, um, signboards all around the city, um, Ebola is deadly, don't touch. It was just really bold and scary. We were forgetting the humanity and the complexity of relationships. She knew about Ebola, she knew the causes. This woman was educated, but when her mother was sick, she came from Akeni to Freetown, washed her mother, took care of her mother, buried her mother before she called 911. And so these stories reminded us that the way in which we're communicating to people, we had to be a lot more nuanced, a lot more empathetic. And a lot of, I think, if we had just understood that concept, prior, like, you know, when on the outset of the disease, would have broken transmission a lot sooner. Kadiatu, I always say, reminds me of my mother because she's got four children, two of her own surviving and two of her brother's uh, children, and she's a fighter. She, she walked from door to door, organization to organization, saying, I need you to help my children. And her daughter is doing super well right now. Um, she's in one of the best schools in Sierra Leone. I mean, this woman sacrifices everything for her children. And the way she got this was just a kid came to stay in her house for the summer, had the disease, infected the whole family, and that was it. Elizabeth is connected to another girl whose story I didn't put here. Um, they come from the same family. Her mother basically got infected, infected her father, who infected his, her first cousin, their family, and the entire family was wiped out. So from her family, she's the only survivor, and from her cousin's family, she, her cousin's also the only survivor. And she's now a nurse, I'm quite proud of her. She went to nursing school. And Abiatu, is a fighter, frontline worker. She works at a hospital I'm very familiar with, at King Hammond Road, center of Freetown. Um, four nurses were, were, uh, were Ebola positive. The place was quarantined for about a year, and she's the only one who walked out alive. And then right after she came out of ETU, two days later, she went back to work and has faced a lot of stigma. Um, I remember I was in, I was in Denmark for a conference um, and I got a call from the girls um, saying, I mean, this is part of just, you know, um, trying to reintegrate where she got, they got to the point where she was almost suicidal because she had thought she had gone over the stigma uh, issue with her coworkers. Um, but clearly even a year afterwards, she was still facing um, extreme forms of, of stigma and always being called an Ebola survivor. Salimatu lost her entire family as well, so she's our little baby um, that we, um, that is very special to our heart because for her, all she feels and thinks is her way out is her liberation is education. And her school kicked her out and we, and, and my team will tell you, we never thought we would be advocates, personal advocates for these women. And that's what we ended up becoming, fighting for either in their house, in their diffusing these situations in their workplaces, um, ensuring that the girls went back to school, ensuring that families took them. That was not part of the plan at all, um, but it became really integral to the work that we did and we do. So just a couple of things in terms of impact. 
Magdalene, uh, when we had one of our sessions, stood up in front of us, I said, the only thing I want is for my country to acknowledge that I nearly died for this country. I don't want money, I don't want anything. And three months later, the president awarded her the highest um, service award, and I was really happy about that because that was literally her, her, her wish. Nursing school, Hawa, Kadiatu's daughter, the woman I told you who, who lost, um, who only has, who has her four kids now, her brother's kids and her kids, is doing really well at school. Um, we reinvest back into everyone's businesses, um, and that was through the photography exhibition I, I spoke about. So, so in terms of where SDP is right now, um, I can talk about this all I want, and I have. I've, I've, this presentation, we have our website up, we, we've been on numerous, um, I think, well-known uh, publications, I've published on the WHO, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, and the reason I say blah, blah is because I understand my whole thing now is um, how do we center agency um, in women's development? How do we combine mental health, psychosocial health, and, 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 and economic and political development? And this is a, a narrative or a rhetoric that people are still like trying to understand. Uh, funding uh, pots do not have spaces to look at psychosocial support for women particularly. So you have to change the language. But that's, I can't change a lot because the core of what we do is provide the services. We do focus or try to focus on mental health. Um, so it's very, very difficult for us to upscale. We want to be able to, 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 to prove um, through data that our interventions work. Someone needs to fund us. Uh, we are continuously having to prove ourselves, even at community level, that we're committed to making changes as women. We're continually having to retell this story over and over again because this is really, really important work, not just around mental well-being, but also how do we restructure how the healthcare system really, its robustness and its responsiveness to women's needs, um, as opposed to segregating the issues, maternal health, mental health, abortion, they're all interlinked. They're all interlinked, but we don't approach um, um, women's health or women's access to healthcare in that manner. It's very disaggregated. So I keep saying that we, there's further need um, for community-based research and interventions. Every initiative across um, the country and institutions have to be gender, gender sensitive. Um, and we are aware of the barriers of women's uh, the barriers that women face to various forms of participation, but there is still resilient, like um, resistance to opening those doors. So the work continues, <laughs> <laughs> and this is and and and, and um, these are our various partners that we that we work with. And I just wanted to end with, you know, the woman that was Person of the Year in Liberia. She died earlier this year, so she didn't die from Ebola, but she died from maternal maternal complications, hence why I keep saying these are so interlinked and we, it's not about the money. There's funding for women's health in developing countries. People love to fund us for that. But the ways in which we look at access and, um, and, um, and the ways in which we address these issues isn't working. Because if you're not dying of one thing, you're dying of another. But the, the, the factors that remain the same is that it's very gendered. Um, so. Yeah, thank you. And Louise, sorry, really quickly, Louise is my mentor. She brought me into this. She just stated, and she died earlier this year as well with terminal cancer. So just the women in my life that continue to just, I think, just support this journey and the work we're trying to do. discussion and I'm sure there are many questions in the room and I'm sure people feel extraordinarily moved I certainly do um, but also really really impressed at, at what you and your co-workers co-activists have gone and done um, and there are a lot of I'm, I'm going to try and keep it practical okay. in order not to you know have a kind of uh, emotional response because <laughs> um, that would also be possible um, I'm fascinated by the many networks that you've traced, um, uh, networks involving women's groups, networks involving 
um, the ones that you're building around Ebola survivors, um, health worker networks, presumably funding networks. I'm just wondering if you could just talk a, a little bit and then we'll open up about the, that initial process when you were there in this very chaotic situation, mm -hmm. who to contact, who to phone, you know, when people are being quarantined, I imagine, you know, I mean, you, you did give us a very clear yeah. sense there of the sheer, the enormity, the scale of, the, of, of some of the issues you were dealing with, but if you could just sort of talk a little bit about those networks. Because I personally, if I were there, I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. Yeah, so. No, it's really, it's really, it's so unglamorous, and it's really, it's really simple. Like, it's not even like I have no sexy story to tell you. It, I will just say, I just started. Um, I think because I've worked on the field for a while, it was just easy to, and I, and you get called upon to go to a lot of survivor conferences. You meet women whose story move you. So a lot of them I already had on my phone, and I knew their backgrounds. And so it was a matter of saying, okay, we've got a little bit of money. We're gonna find space. We'll pay for the space. We are going to call on these 20 women that we've met over the six months and have that are really special. So the first set of 20 women, there is no, if we're to really look at, um, if someone were to say why these 20 women quantified or you, you wanted to put it within some sort of research um, framework, we would fail, we would be called unsound. It was I met them at this survivor conference in this fancy hotel and it was ridiculous and it meant nothing. Um, and, and, and then we just started with them. So it was, it's, the networks are there because I'm on the ground, but I just, I didn't know a lot. This is not my expertise. I just knew something had to happen and we had to start. When we started and just saw the impact of the first two sessions. I knew we were onto something, and that was where, like I said, the first six months were completely self-funded, which reiterates or reinforces my privilege to be able to, you know, say I'm gonna pay you in USD at this time when things are difficult to help me make this work so that I can also, when I'm ready to, when as we begin to look for funding, um, we have something sound and practical and rooted in, 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 in real practice to, to, in order to ask for, for money. So that's the truth in terms of what happened. Thank you, thank you. And just one, one quick question. And will you, at the end of this year, I mean, presumably everything's going on in Freetown and, mm -hmm. and surrounds as we speak. Will you go back? Will you, what, what's the next stage for you personally? I'm always gonna go back. This for me is what, I mean, I have political aspirations in general. Um, and certainly, yes, <laughs> they're there. Um, so for me, this is, but there's, there are other parts of my life that I want to grow and develop. That's what coming to Oxford, a very difficult decision actually is all about. Um, so STP is what holds me back home all the time. Um, I, I will go back, hopefully my doctoral thesis will be around this work that we're doing. Um, like right now we're fighting with our funders to, they're asking me to change the language and not focus on mental health, but focus on um, service delivery. And I keep arguing that service delivery is one part of the issue. And we've seen resources being put into institutions, into delivering things, into medication, into this. But it's the policies that continue to perpetuate these barriers. It's the cultural, uh, uh, um, the cultural and social uh, uh, barriers that perpetuate this divide. So it's not the point is. <laughs> We're fighting. <laughs> we're fighting. But um, in we're in, okay. So in September, we're starting with fifty women as our core group, um, and expanding as always. We have an outreach of like twenty, two hundred. Like these were twenty, but we had one hundred fifty, two hundred, and we're trying to see if our intervention actually works. So after we diagnose the women in our program possibly with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. We track them over the year to see how, how they're developing and if, if, if what we're doing actually works. So yes, I'm always there. Always go home, in short. Yeah.